this morning, I'm, I'm just thrilled that um, the text we're going to look at, Matthew 5, 8, and you can begin turning there. I'm, I'm thrilled that this particular text, and of course all the texts in Matthew relate to the gospel at some level, but this particular text is just saturated in the gospel. It really is so much about salvation that I believe it will be a blessing to all of us if you know Christ we're always thrilled by the gospel. And if you don't know Christ, literally in the next 45 minutes, you will know how to know Him. And you will know how to see your destiny changed. Now, as we have gone through the Beatitudes, we're focused on Christian joy. And what we've noticed is that every Beatitude sort of has its own persona, its, its own identity, its own unique emphasis. And we've seen that it's just every beatitude is the tip of the iceberg. It's based on Old Testament scripture that Jesus is drawing from, as well as, of course, his divine right to speak the word of God. But this particular beatitude has perhaps what we might call the persona of being thought-provoking and maybe even a little unnerving. Why is it unnerving? Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This beatitude may be somewhat unnerving. It may be a little bit thought-provoking because the obvious question is, what does it mean to have a pure heart? Because we all know the answer to that for our own lives, right? We're going to work our way to the answer to the question, what it means to have a pure heart. And by the time we're done, my... My prayer is that you'll have a better grasp on what joy is as related to this purity of heart. But to begin with, let's consider the basis or the foundation for this particular beatitude. Some feel that it's based in Psalm 73.1. Psalm 73.1 says, Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. And that sounds related but while Psalm 73.1 provides a good cross-reference to this beatitude, the context of Psalm 73 is quite different. The context is the faithful worshiper's determination to follow God at all costs, even though in his life experience, the wicked are prospering while the righteous suffer. And in fact, Psalm 73 is a determination to obey God without any reference to any sort of reward whatsoever. Verse 25 of Psalm 73 says, Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. That's very different than the beatitude found here in Matthew 5, 8, though. This is a beatitude that clearly promises a reward. The reward of blessing and the reward of seeing God. Others feel it's closely related to James 4, 8. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Some believe that James 4, 8 is based on an earlier version of Matthew's gospel, it's not proven, it's not provable. But if James 4, 8 is based on some earlier version of Matthew, you would expect the same vocabulary, you would expect them to be very similar, but they actually use completely different word families concerning purity of heart in James 4, 8 and Matthew 5, 8. Very different. And again, James 4, 8 provides a reasonable cross-reference, a, a helpful study tool, but it's way too much of a stretch to say that Matthew 5, 8 is based on James 4.8 or vice versa. The very best option, and I believe we can prove this this morning, 
is that Jesus is basing this beatitude on Psalm 24. There's two major pieces of evidence that meaningfully connect these two passages. First of all, Psalm 24, verse 4, speaks to the one with a pure heart. And this is the only text, Psalm 24, 4, in all of the Greek translation of the Old Testament that is basically identical to the Greek form that Jesus uses here in Matthew 5, 8 with one very tiny difference in the word form. This is the only reference in all of the Old Testament that very specifically and precisely refers to an individual having a pure heart. It's the only one. And in fact, it's identical to the way Jesus is phrasing this in the Beatitude. The second major piece of evidence, the reward of seeing God. Jesus promises here, this is associated with Psalm 24, 6, in which the faithful one is the one who seeks the face of God, who seeks, as it were, to see God. And so that's where we really need to start to understand what Jesus is referencing here when it comes to seeing God. Now, I'm not going to have you turn to Psalm 24 for a while because we're actually going to stay in the Sermon on the Mount. It's really going to help us understand some of the concepts I'm going to give you from Psalm 24. So to keep you from flipping back and forth five or six times, we'll stay in the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to organize our thoughts this morning around three questions related to what it means to see God. Three questions centered on this idea of seeing God. These are simple questions. The first question is, who may see God? Who may see God? Or to put it this way, who may freely worship God? Who is welcomed into God's presence? Who is the one that God is glad to see? And from Psalm 24, verse 4, there are four qualifications to see God. Two of them are stated positively and two are stated negatively. The first qualification, Psalm 24.4 says, innocent hands, innocent hands. We're going to read this text numbers of times so you'll be familiar with it. But Psalm 24.3 says, who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise in his holy place? In other words, who may approach him? Who is welcome? Who may come see him? Who may be in fellowship with him? Who may be in communion with him? Who may be in unity with him? Who may be one with him? It's all the concepts you can think of, of who may come into God's presence. Verse 4, he who has innocent hands. Innocent hands is a metaphorical way of speaking of the deeds that you do, the things that you accomplish, that you can't possibly expect God to receive you. You can't possibly expect God to welcome you. You can't possibly expect God to let you worship Him and that He's going to be honored and He's going to be glorified by this when your actions are degenerate and selfish and proud and worldly and sinful. That would be a a ridiculous expectation that God would still welcome you. Look down a few verses in Matthew 5, verse 23. Matthew 5, verse 23, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. That's the standard. That is a, 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 an innocent hand. And notice the onus of responsibility here. This is very different from our natural human tendency to think about how we've been wronged. This is Jesus saying, you think about how you may have wronged others. That if you know someone has something against you, if there's anything you can do in your power to fix this, then you don't appear before God in worship. 
And I want you to know this here. There's no reference to who's right and who's wrong, just that there's a brother who has something against you and you have a responsibility to do everything possible to go fix it. Jesus gives another example of this standard of seeing God concerning innocent hands. Verse 29 of chapter 5. But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Innocent hands. It's right here in the Sermon on the Mount. First qualification, innocent hands. This second qualification to see God. A pure heart. A pure heart. Psalm 24, 3. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise in his holy place. Verse 4. He who has innocent hands and a pure heart. The one with a pure heart is the one with a, a right attitude, a right will, or put it this way, a correct inner disposition. Right here in Matthew 5, again, Jesus gives an example of an impure heart, which helps us understand purity of heart. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart. The lust is the internal attitude of desire, which... Although the man may not be able to have the woman he desires in reality, he can have her in his mind. And that's an impure heart. Still in Matthew 5, Jesus gives another example of an impure heart, a a higher standard, of a pure heart rather, a higher standard, an inner disposition which tends toward graciousness and kindness and love. Verse 43 of chapter 5, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus gives the logic and the reasoning behind the standard. The the reasoning is that anyone on earth can reciprocate love. Anyone on earth can return love. But initiating love, maybe even without return, that's a sign of a pure heart. He says in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. First qualification, innocent hands. Second qualification, a pure heart. It's a third qualification from Psalm 24 to see God, and that is no idolatry. No idolatry. We've had two positives, innocent hands and pure heart. Now we have the first of two negatives, no idolatry. Psalm 24, 3, who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise in his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness. Worthlessness is a word that speaks of that which is false, that which is fake, that which is fraudulent, it's phony. To lift up your, your soul to something speaks of worship, of adoration, of veneration, of honor. And so the psalmist is speaking of idolatry of any kind that you're not lifting your soul towards something that's useless and worthless. And right here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives examples of idolatry. In chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus isn't condemning the accumulation of wealth. He's not saying that you're in sin if you have a savings account. He's talking about treasure as a heart condition. Where your treasure is, what that, that which you value the most. What he is condemning is idolatry of the heart that places wealth in a higher position than it ought to be. And in fact, he goes on to illustrate how the eye, symbolically that which lets light and lets truth into your soul, into your heart, how critical the eye is. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is in darkness, how great is the darkness. That a bad eye or an eye for wealth or an eye for anything you idolize, it blocks the light, it blocks the truth, and now nothing good gets in. An eye that's so focused on an idol that the soul is now darkened. And then Jesus gives the conclusion to this lesson, a lesson on covenant loyalty to God, not being idolatrous. In verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. In the next section, Jesus goes on to give comfort that for the truly faithful, those who are are genuine believers in the Lord, God will always provide what you need. In verse 31 of chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? But then Jesus makes the connection to idolatry again, and he describes unrighteous behavior. Verse 32, For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. It means they're obsessed with them. They, They idolize them. No idolatry. Innocent hands, pure heart, no idolatry, a fourth qualification to see God. No deceit. No deceit. Psalm 24, 3. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise in this holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully. And has not sworn deceitfully that the one who may ascend to see God, to worship God, to be welcomed by God, is one who has not sworn deceitfully. He's not beset by dishonesty. He has integrity. He does what he says he's going to do. He's not dishonest. Look back at Matthew chapter 5 again. Verse 33. Matthew 5, 33. Jesus says again, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond that, or beyond these, is of the evil one. His principle is clear here. If you say yes, then mean it. If you say no, then mean it. We all have run into this. The person who says, I swear to you on my mother's grave, or I swear to you on the basis of this, why do they have to do that? Probably because they're untrustworthy. 
And they have to elevate it because everyone around them knows that when they say yes, it means maybe. Don't be the person who's all talk but doesn't follow through. And in fact, even more seriously to Jesus' principle here, don't be the person who never intended to follow through in the first place, but just said yes because you wanted to make that person feel good in the moment. Who may see God? Who may worship God? Who may be received? Who may be warmly welcomed by God? Psalm 24.3 Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise in His holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully. Innocent hands, pure heart, no idolatry, no deceit. So just to put all that together, all that you must do to be qualified to see God is have innocent hands, a pure heart, no idolatry, and no deceit. You see the problem? You see the difficulty? And the word difficulty is putting it lightly. This isn't a difficulty. This is an impossibility. Innocent hands? James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles once, he's guilty of all of it. Romans 3.12, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good, not even one. Okay, check off innocent hands. You failed. How about a pure heart? Genesis 6, 5, every intent of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. In Genesis 8, 21, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Proverbs 29, who can say I've kept my heart pure? I am clean from sin. Pure heart? Check that one off. No idolatry. Matthew 19, 24, Jesus said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Let me broaden that up. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for an idolater to get saved. Who does that mark off? Everyone. We all worship something above God. So check that one off. How about no deceit? Jeremiah 17, 9 again, the heart is more deceitful than all else. So here's the problem. It's not like it was a close call. It's not like you you almost made it. You haven't even come close to having innocent hands, to having a pure heart, to having no idolatry and no deceit. And it's not as if you can somehow try harder to achieve this. For a couple of reasons. First of all, okay, you're trying harder and harder. How do you erase all the times you failed in those four categories before? There's no erasing it. And the second reason, we get this declaration from the Lord, Romans 3.20, that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, the harder you try to obey these precepts, the harder you try to have innocent hands and a pure heart and no idolatry and no deceit, all it's going to do is show you your own failure at a higher level. Because God's standards are unattainable. And here's the, here's the difficulty, here's the impossibility. The standard hasn't changed. There's no excuse. You can't just say, but God, that's impossible. Can you lower the standard a little bit? God is holy. By definition, he cannot lower the standard, and he will not. The standard is still, who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh? Who may rise in his holy place? 
He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully. So the answer to the question, who may see God, is no one. No one may see God. Because it's an unattainable standard. There's an obvious second question. If no one can see God, how may I see God? How may I see God? Now we're desperate for answers. Look back at Matthew 5, 8 again. Because you see, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This doesn't define a qualification for salvation. This defines a result of salvation. Your pure heart is not something you do to attain salvation. Your pure heart is something you have as a result of salvation. That's the glory of regeneration. That's the glory of the internal change affected by the Holy Spirit. The 2 Corinthians 5.17 reminds us that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And now as part of the new covenant community by the grace of God, you participate fully and totally in what Jeremiah 31.33 describes as people with the law of God written where? On their heart. This is the change brought about by the sovereign choice of God. This is the classic illustration Jesus gave in John 3.8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. This is what Jesus calls in the same passage, being born again. And you had nothing to do with it. You did not, in your mother's womb, start knocking and saying, you know, it's been about nine months. It's time, to, it's time for us to go here. You were born because others ordained it. You were born again because God ordained it. This is the glory. This is the joy. This is the, the phenomenal impossibility of what it means to be justified in Christ. Because in heaven, in the courts, in the books, as it were, in the record, you are viewed as having innocent hands. And in the eyes of heaven... You are viewed just as innocent as Christ in all that you have done, that you have, according to the righteous justice of God through justification, you are viewed as if you have never sinned one time in all of your life. Your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. They've been sunk to the bottom of the ocean. And in a way we can't possibly fathom, God has said, I will remember them no more. You're viewed as having a pure heart. That in the eyes of heaven, your very thoughts are holy. Your very intentions are righteous. Your very motives are perfect. That's how you're officially viewed. You're viewed as having no idolatry. That in the eyes of heaven, never one time have you ever idolized anything more than God. Have you ever worshipped anything You're innocent of idolizing anything whatsoever. You're considered a perfectly, totally, completely loyal subject of Jesus Christ, wholly devoted to Him and to Him alone. And in the eyes of heaven, you are viewed as having no deceit. You're considered as always honorable, always 
full of integrity, always honest. You've never had a dishonest thought. You've never had a, a sinful thought. You've never had a dishonest motive. You've never manipulated. You've never said anything to get your way. You've never done anything dishonest. You've never misled. You've never told the quote-unquote white lie. You've never just lied outright. In the eyes of heaven, you've never done any of that. And it's the work of God which gives you what we'll now define as a pure heart. Here's a pure heart. A genuinely changed heart. That's what it is. It's changed. And what happens when it's changed? You now yearn to pursue righteousness. You desire to obey the Lord. You desire to do what's pleasing to Him. Your greatest joy, your greatest pleasure is in knowing that you've pleased God. A genuinely changed heart which causes a pursuit of righteousness and it compels a, a natural yearning to obey the Lord. Who changed your heart? David prayed in Psalm 51.10. <clears throat> he said, create in me a clean heart. This word create consistently in the Old Testament refers to ex nihilo creation, the creation out of nothing, just like uh, the universe and the world created out of nothing, It's a divine act of creation that if David was to have a clean heart, God must do it supernaturally. This was not David meeting God halfway. This was not a deal that David made with God. It was utterly and completely God's work. This genuinely changed heart, this purity of heart, this is the opposite of the Pharisees who were outwardly showy but inwardly wicked. Jesus railed against this hypocrisy in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 25. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In this way, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. But that's not you if you're in Christ. Jesus uses the word hypocrite numbers of times in the Gospels, and he always speaks of an unbeliever. That is the definition of a hypocrite, that you might outwardly look good, but what is wrong with your heart? It's not changed, and it's impure. It's God who saves. That God whom you are unfit to see, you're unworthy to worship, you're unsuitable to enjoy, He's made you judicially in the courts of heaven, innocent and pure of heart. And on top of that, you've been empowered by the dwelling of the Holy Spirit to help you in your progressive sanctification because we all know we're not actually pure of heart, but we're being worked in that direction. The continual process of being made more and more like Christ, the the genuinely growing in purity of heart, in reality, in practice, in your life right now, to put on the attitudes that God would have you to exhibit, to put off the things from your former life. And what does that look like? Well, it affects everything. That your love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is from a place of genuine purity, genuine affection, genuine love and kindness. That your desire to see the gospel spread results in pure actions from a sincere place of genuine concern for the lost. 
that your submission to whatever authority, authority God has placed in your life is from a pure heart. It's real. That your service to those around you, to those in the church, to your family, it's all from a truly pure heart. And listen, it's because of this remaking, this, this refurbishing of my heart by God and your heart by God, it's because of that very reason that we are to assume the best of one another, isn't it? That we can assume that the real genuine heart of our fellow believer is in accordance with 1 Corinthians 13, that love is patient, that love is kind, that love is not jealous, love does not boast, it's not puffed up, it doesn't act unbecomingly, it doesn't seek its own, it's not provoked, it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, it rejoices with the truth, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. This is what we expect of each other, isn't it? When you're speaking to someone here after a church service and you're sharing your heart and bearing your soul and they look interested on the outside, don't you expect rightly that on the inside they're truly interested also and they're not, they're not saying, come on, keep the look of interest on your face. Come on, keep the look of interest on your face. Wouldn't that be terrible if true thoughts suddenly leaked out? What do you think of this situation? Well, I couldn't care less. Did I just say that? Did that just come out of my mouth? No, we expect a pure heart from one another. But how about this? Expect a pure heart from yourself. Expect it. Because you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not in order to see God, but because you've been saved, because you've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you've been forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future, and you are being made into the likeness of the Son of God. So how may you see God? By being found in his son, by submitting to Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he also promised to all who have faith in him in the same chapter, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Why? So you can see God. Who may see God? Psalm 23, verse 4, He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully. How may I see God? Since that's impossible. You receive by faith the free gift of salvation offered by Christ because his payment of your sin was sufficient. The Christian has received a standing, a judicial standing before God as one who is innocent, who is pure in heart, who has no idolatry, and who has no deceit. But there's a third question. What does it mean to see God? What does that mean? I've kind of danced around this because there's a lot of ideas that have been put forward in in the years past. Some say that To see God is a mystical-like perception of God in a more insightful way or or a greater clarity. We can't say that because there's, there's nothing mystical about knowing God with greater clarity. You simply open your Bible and read about Him. Others say that seeing God is, is metaphorical for experiencing the kindness of God through others in the world, through the church. But there's no indication of that from the text. 
All the other results of the blessings are always tangible things. They're not metaphorical. Instead, we need to look to the context of the Beatitudes in particular and generally speaking to all the context of Matthew. What does it mean to see God? The context of Matthew, Matthew, Matthew's gospel is a call to be part of the kingdom of Christ in the coming age. That's what Matthew is about. In fact, we could show this right from the Beatitudes in that particular context. Verse 3 of Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven? We've said this before. It's another name for the kingdom which belongs to heaven, but is the kingdom of Christ reigning on the earth that is yet to come. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We established in an earlier message that the ultimate comfort will be found when you're completely glorified, completely sinless, completely perfected, and you're in the kingdom of Christ. Verse 5, Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. This one's a little more obvious. We said this means specifically inherit the land. This is a promise to Jews, but ultimately, when is this fulfilled? In the coming kingdom of Christ. So far, we're three for three, coming kingdom of Christ. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When is this ultimately fulfilled? In the coming kingdom of Christ. Four for four. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We made the case that the ultimate fulfillment of receiving mercy is being included in the coming kingdom of Christ. Five for five. And how about verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What do you think it's going to be? This cannot merely be saying that seeing God is somehow a, a, a better perception of God or being closer to God or, or a metaphorical greater understanding of God. Every other result so far in the Beatitudes is eschatological. It refers to the end times. It refers to the, the kingdom of Christ. So would we find this result, this reward in this beatitude to be future? That salvation guarantees the promise of a future beholding of God. And by the way, the blessing, of course, is now also because it's, it's blessed just to know that that promise is there. That's where we get our joy. Now, this presents attention to us. This presents a problem because when you read... Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. We can find other scriptures to support that. But now the tension is they shall see God. Moses wanted to see God's glory. What did God tell him? No one can see me and live. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. So how do we resolve this tension? The only way to resolve that tension is to go into the next age. That when the Christian is resurrected and glorified, the unhindered fellowship with God, the the sweet, perfect communion, the total, actual purity of heart, in a time when every trace, every sign, every remembrance, every hint of sin is removed such that every single one of your thoughts is pure and holy and righteous and perfect then you may see god then you may see his glory but how and how is this fulfilled in the end times and how is this related 
to the kingdom of Christ. Now we can turn together to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is the basis for the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 24 gives the full expression of this shortened version. What does it mean to see God? From the context of Jesus using Psalm 24 to craft his beatitude in Psalm 24, ought to have the answer to this question. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise in his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall lift up a blessing from Yahweh, there's the blessedness, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Pay heed, O Jacob. This is the full expression of the shortened version that Jesus gives. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And now, here's the full expression of what it means to see God. Verse 7. Lift up your, gate, your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift yourselves up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. When have the gates and the doors of Israel seen the king in all of his glory coming in? They never have. They never have. Yes, today is Palm Sunday and we celebrate Jesus humbly riding on a donkey toward Jerusalem. Did he come in all of his glory? Did he come in such a way that even the gates and the doors were readying themselves for them for him metaphorically. That's never happened. I read the passage from Zechariah 9, verse 9, and you see the switch immediately from riding on the colt of a donkey all the way immediately to destroying his enemies. Psalm 24 is the psalm of David in which he is metaphorically calling to all the gates, calling to all the doors of Israel to welcome the coming king, the coming king who will fulfill God's covenant to David, to have a king from his body on the throne of Israel for all time. In the coming kingdom, you will see God in Christ, in all of his glory, Christ as he truly is. Let's imagine just for a moment that you behold Christ for the first time, ultimately first in heaven, but ultimately on the future kingdom of Christ here on earth, that'll be a normal course of events to see Christ. What would that be like? What is it going to be like to see God? Here's what it's like. Revelation 1.13 says, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the, in the furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters and having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth 
and his face was like the sun shining in its power. Here's what it's like, Isaiah 6, 1. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Not the whole heaven, the whole earth. This will be the experience of all who have been purified. If you've ever read Revelation 1 or Isaiah 6 or Ezekiel 1, and you've said, oh, I would love to have been there. You will. You will. This message is titled, Joy for the Purified. I specifically chose that name because it's past tense and it's passive. Meaning your purification in the sense of being made completely right before God, it's already happened. It's past tense. It's happened in a moment in time. You are purified in the holy courts of heaven. And it's passive in that it was completely initiated and completed by God. You did nothing to purify your own heart. He did it all. So where's the joy? Where's the joy in that? Just try to grasp this for a minute. Pause for a moment and think. Only three men living on the earth saw Christ in all of his glory while he was on the earth. That's Peter, James, and John at the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe you can stretch it and count it four because Paul saw Christ in a vision after Christ's ascension into heaven. Okay, maybe four. But in the coming kingdom, my dear brothers and sisters... Seeing Christ in all of his glory will be a normal daily event. The pure pleasure, the pure delight, the ecstasy of seeing God in his Son, in all his beauty, in all of his majesty, in all of his light, all of his glory, all of his perfection. That is your coming reality if you belong to him. If you belong to him. Because you see, the impure in heart will also see God. And they will see Christ not as a loving Savior who is glorious and majestic. They will see Christ as a terrifying, eternal God who is the one that will pronounce judgment on them. Depart from me, I never knew you. And will order their being cast into the lake of fire. But the pure pleasure and delight and the ecstasy of seeing God the Son, that is reserved for all who belong to Him. Do you see how important it is the dozens of times in the New Testament the Apostle Paul says that you must be in Christ. You must be in Christ. You must be in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, then the promises given in 1 Thessalonians 4 that once you're with the Lord, you will always be with Him. And those are your promises. You'll always be with Him. You'll always rejoice in Him. Do you think that in the coming kingdom of Christ on this earth, that after a hundred years, seeing the glory of Christ will get old? Do you think after 500 years, seeing the beauty of Christ will become mundane? Do you think in the new earth, in new heaven, in new Jerusalem, that after a million years, seeing the glory of Christ will get old? You know what Psalm 16 says? 
It says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What's the pleasure at the right hand of God? It's God. It's seeing God. But I would have you never forget what it took for you to behold the majesty of God, to see God, to be purified for all eternity. Just listen. Listen carefully. Listen intently. Listen with a heart of gratitude. Then when the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him and they stripped him and put a, gar- a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they knelt down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him. And they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. When they had mocked him, They took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he did not want to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were blaspheming him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them were saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Why? So that you could see God. Our Father, we are filled with gratitude. We're filled with thankfulness. that you would so graciously and kindly send your beloved and dear one and only unique son to die a horrible, cruel death on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would believe on him so that someday we might see God. Our sins paid for, 
our hearts rendered pure. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.